The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. Take a break, relax and take stock, but then also to get back to work and carry on with what you were doing. My name is Jeremy Phillips, and you're listening to the Cinema Limbo 2021 Review of the Year, so please rejoin me and Chris Arnsby as we carry on with our thrilling countdown. So next... uh... Oh, this one's easy. Uh, third on the bottom five lift list is Censor. Um, it's a British horror film, uh, uh, at least co-written and directed by Prano Bailey Bond, and it's her first film. Um, it's about a woman who works for the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification, um, watching and uh, classifying horror movies mm. in the early 80s. Um but she also has a troubled family background. Her sister went missing many years before and her parents have had her recently declared dead. Um, and the horror films that she's watching are starting to inveigle into her troubled mind. Right. Um, and she starts to think that maybe her uh, sister is becoming, is part of the horror film business in some way and is being exploited. It's, well, it, it's, it's, it's really bad. <laughs> Uh, to begin with, yeah, but it seems to be arguing against horror films, like in in favour of the argument that horror films corrupt people, which we know is not true. Oh, okay, that's quite an old-fashioned argument, isn't it? Yes, and what's even weirder is that um, it's co or executive produced by Kim Newman, the horror critic, who I would have thought would be very much on the other side of the argument. If, you know, horror films are whatever they are i mean it's like you can use a gun to shoot a lock off you know you know a thing only becomes a weapon once you use it for violence before that it's just a tool a horror movie is is just a is just an artifact until i'm genuinely surprised to hear you put kim newman's name in there because as you say that it makes me wonder if he thought there was something else going on with the story it's i mean everyone involved in making horror films in 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 the film itself is sleazy or corrupt hmm. or a potential rapist or an actual rapist and the film is made in a really strange way so it's very stylized very um uh it, ha- it has a nervous intensity so that you know, like a scene that's filmed in an office or set in an office rather is filmed as though it's in a horror movie hmm. and this is a horror movie but the point is there's no baseline of reality it right. should start right. Oh, this is an office. No, it's an office in a horror movie. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. I, like I said in my video review, yeah. al- in almost every scene, regardless of the setting, you expect Jason Voorhees to burst through the wall with a machete like he's the Kool-Aid man. Um, the scene where uh, the main character is told by her parents that they had their daughter declare- uh, their other daughter declared dead, that's set in like a suburban restaurant mm. 
in a like a quite crowded public place. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would that be in a public place? Surely you would have that conversation somewhere private. Yeah. There's no baseline of reality. So later in the movie, where things start getting really crazy, and the the shape of the picture starts to change. So it goes from standard widescreen, and it starts shrinking down into four by three. Okay. As though the main character is actually now inside one of these yeah. video horror movies. It doesn't work because the, the the way they're doing it is that it's also the picture's just getting smaller and smaller. So it's just this little like mm. square block in the middle of a black screen rather than just the sides shrinking in so it on a technical level it doesn't work right um but there's uh, so much of it is ripped off from other movies there's bits of mandy in there the panos cosmatos film with nicholas cage it's just uh, the bits that seem original are the bits that are arguing against the film's own existence but not in a clever interesting way like matrix resurrections but in a this oh horror films are terrible and they corrupt people so i've made a horror film to tell people about it's it it's terrible yeah which isn't very good i i said on my review that i i don't like being so heavy in criticism of um director's first films yeah because like your first film you kind of deserve like a mulligan yeah. on that that's a practice one if it's not good that's for practice it's mm. okay um but this one is it was so bad and so poorly thought out and just hmm. everything about it was just wrong for what it seemed to be trying to do or, or just i i didn't like it and i didn't like what i thought it was trying to be yeah and even at an hour and 20 minutes it felt like a waste of my time and it made me cross so number 5 for the year um, is Where Do You Go Bernadette? Okay. A film <laughs> I have seen no one talk about anywhere on the internet. <laughs> um, yeah. Where did you hear about it? I think I saw it on a list of recommended films on the AV Club. But it came out in the US, I think, in 2019. It had a delayed release in the UK. It didn't come out anywhere until about mm. a year later, at least. Um, it's co-written and directed by Richard Le Richard Linklater, okay, and stars Kate Blanchett as Bernadette, who is an architecture prodigy, the first female architect to win the um, MacArthur Genius Grant. Ha came up with all these extraordinary um, projects of turning a glasses factory into a home or a, a house made entirely from materials. Um, within a 20 mile radius but she has become blocked hmm. and after 20 years of not being able to move forward her block is causing her her creativity and the the difficult parts of her personality to leak out in all kinds of difficult behavior she has uh, she's married she has a daughter and the, f the film avoids obvious cliches. She is she's clearly deeply in love with her husband. They have a, a, a fairly strong, healthy marriage. She's devoted to her daughter, whom she's raised, and they have a, they're, they're very close. But there's the neighbor, played by Kristen Wiig, who's always complaining about the, the, the 
It's like, you know, what's that Japanese... Oh, not weed. Not, like, not weed is coming yeah. like, over the wall and she's worried about that. And um, she start, this, this conflict gets to the point where... Um, oh, and also there is... Um, she has a digital virtual assistant like this sort of service that you can oh yeah hire to act as your remote assistant mm. and it turns out that was a scam and that 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 company is actually a front for a criminal enterprise and they're going to leech away all the family's money and there's an intervention at which point bernadette excuses herself climbs out of the window and runs away hmm. and we then have this dual plot of her escaping all over the world and her husband and daughter trying to find her right. because they're worried about what she might do and what's going to happen. Um, all of which <laughs> fails to account for the fact the movie is a comedy. Okay, yeah. It's a surprisingly warm-hearted, engaging comedy that I really enjoyed. I think it... Did it get... It did. I gave it my award for best adapted screenplay, okay. based on the book by Maria Semple. Um, Bernadette is a really interesting character. She's someone who is difficult and opinionated, but never portrayed as being a bad person. Yeah, she's close with her family, but he argues with other people and causes a scene in public, and it has a central conflict where she's she's a genius who is unable to exercise her creativity yeah. and, and doesn't know how to and doesn't know how to unblock that thing in her head mm. um but it, it and it has a huge supporting cast Lawrence Fishburne has one scene as a, a colleague of hers um oh who else was there was, uh, Kate Burton turns up towards the end uh, the you know, the film you know, then turns into this like global travelogue with uh, the the last sort of quarter or so playing out in Antarctica, um, it's a, I mean it's quite a long time since I watched it mm, now. Yeah, but I was really surprised by it. Um, it's a it's a film that's really interested in its characters and is interested in ma in making unlikable characters likable mm. and vice versa. Of it's showing the importance of light and shade and the importance of having an outlet for yourself yeah not just as as a as a creative person but in anything you you the, the danger of repressing yeah. your own feelings and your own impulses and it comes to a surprisingly uplifting and um heartwarming climax as well it it wasn't anything that i expected from richard linklater hmm. Because his work is generally a bit all over the place, yeah. Um, but I really liked it. It's a really enjoyable film. Um, it would, you know, it would make a good date movie. I think. Okay. Where, uh, where did you track it down? A digital rental. I okay. don't. I don't know if it's available on disc. I imagine it is, but it's. Hmm. I, you know, I rented it on Google. Um, but yeah, where do you go, Bernadette? Kate Blanchett is fantastic. Billy Crudup is very good. Emma Nelson, who plays the daughter, is very good. Kristen Wiig, who plays the the neighbour, gets a, sort of a lot of. Like, she's like, oh, the mean neighbour, hmm. but she actually has a lot of shade to her yeah. 
personality and you and you get to see a bit of of why why these characters are like the way they are and you know they're just flawed human beings and no one is bad there's no villain in the story you know it's 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 a film that has conflict without actually having anyone you can point at to say they're the problem it's a very humanist film Hmm. yeah it's great um what else what else oh number four for the year um and i'm surprised that well am i surprised you haven't seen this <laughs> possibly i don't know if Did i should involve be going outside um no actually because oh. it's on disney plus now ah the french um, dispatch okay i went through a brief phase of loudly announcing i wasn't going to give um disney any money because they behaved despicably towards alan dean foster but i do believe that dispute has been uh, resolved now oh good i hope so anyway i'll go back and check later but i'm putting you on watch disney i thought you thought you took it to me for a minute (laughs) he knows karate um yeah so it's the new was anderson Mm. film um and it looks and sounds of the way Wes Anderson films yeah. usually do. But it's uh, completely different in format. It's an anthology story um, being structured around the final issue of the French Dispatch of the Liberty Kansas Sun, which is a New Yorker-style magazine produced in a um, fictional French city with all sorts of articles about whatever it is the editor happens to find interesting. And the final issue is a compilation of articles from issues past uh, produced after the editor's death. And after that issue is uh, printed, the editor has announced, or it's in the editor's will, that the magazine will be closed down and the printing press is molten. (laughs) (laughs) Very specifically. So we have that kind of framing story. Mm. We have a travelogue of the town itself. Uh, presented by Owen Wilson's character. The editor is played by Bill Murray. Okay, I was going to ask who Bill Murray was in this one. And then our, our, our three stories are one about a uh, an artist in prison for uh, murder serving two life sentences, uh, one about a student revolution where the journalist ends up getting involved in the revolution itself, and another is supposedly a food article about police cuisine i.e. that which can be eaten with one hand while you're writing a report right. with the other, but which turns out to be a crime story about the kidnapping of the chief of police's son, where the food critic winds up tagging along and being instrumental yeah. in the whole case. Um, it's a story. It's a film about the importance of stories and the way stories are told. Mm. Each of them is being told in retrospect, and it adds another layer of framing to the story so the the art story is being told by the journalist played by tilda swinton but she's telling it in the form of an illustrated lecture and we then flash back to the prison which is i think in black and white or partially in black and white and so it it's all sort of stories within stories within stories but about the importance of expression and art and engaging with these characters um the leader of the student revolutionaries is played by timothy chalamet who i wouldn't have expected a great comic performance from 
but gets sort of the Wes Anderson deadpan perfectly yeah. as this quite po-faced, quite serious young man um, who winds up sleeping with the, the journalist played by Frances McDormand. And she winds up acting as matchmaker for him and the, yeah. the other revolutionary who's in love with him. Um, and the final, the final story I think was my favorite with Jeffrey Wright being interviewed on television about his story um, and talking about how he was he has great sympathy for prisoners and having been in that situation himself because he was gay um, and had been arrested for soliciting in the past and it all sort of folds it sort of folds back and around on itself it's a hard one to talk about because it, it it's so fragmented with mm. so many different sort of themes and sort of running plot threads but I just found it really engaging. I I know some people find Wes Anderson's films alienating because they are so styled yeah. and so rigid in their um, their visuals and their sort of the fantastical level of the characterizations. But he's always struck me as one of the most humane filmmakers. He's totally engaged in his characters. He's not above making them difficult or dislikable. Mm. Um. And he, he's he's in, he's really engaged with these this wild collection of strange people and the stories they have to tell, and the way that that their stories are told to the rest of the world to the to the folks back home in mm. Kansas. I mean, it looks fantastic. It sounds fantastic the way that all of his films do. But it's it's warm and funny and clever and intricate. And I think it plays up to all his great strengths as a filmmaker. <laughs> Sorry, that seemed like, ha- that seemed like quite a nice place to leave it, so I wasn't going to chip in. <laughs> well, uh, well, uh, please do chip in. Uh, Wes Anderson's not. Um, I'm never entirely sure how many Wes Anderson films I've seen. Um, did he do the one? I can't even remember the name of the the one about the hotel, the Grand Budapest the Hotel. Grand Budapest. Yeah, I've definitely seen that one. Um, it was pretty good. <laughs> that's my favourite of his films. Okay. I think that's his best. Where, I mean, where does this relate in terms of, say, to, to the Grand Budapest? Um, it's one rung down, okay, but only one. He's done a f- couple that I really wasn't keen on. Mm. Um, his first couple of films, Bottle Rocket and um, Rushmore. Oh, I think I've seen Rushmore. Um, I didn't I, get it. I didn't. <laughs> I mean, Rushmore deserves credit because that was the film that reinvented Bill Murray. Mm. I think that was like a year after he did The Man Who Knew Too Little, Ooh. which was sort of his last yeah. normal mainstream lead. And then he now he's reinvented as yeah. the character actor. Um, and the, the Darjeeling Limited, I've, I wasn't, I felt a bit too dry and a bit too like he's, he's working out his own problems yeah. in this film. And also, Fantastic Mr. Fox, similarly, mm. felt a bit too much like he's working out his own problems. But his other animated film, Isle of Dogs, I thought was great. Yeah. And life, the Life Aquatic is, fanta- is brilliant, and I loved Grand Budapest. And I think that's all of them. Oh, um, The Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't really care for that either. It, it took until The Life Aquatic yeah. that I actually thought, oh, I get it now. I think that was the trouble. I think I had an early exposure to Rushmore because people kept going on about it as being this like great film, and and I watched it and went, uh, it, "Is it a film about a self-absorbed teenager?" Yeah, at school. It's just uh, whatever. I was a self-absorbed teenager at school. I don't care about other self-absorbed teenagers. 
I th- I think he he'd yet to kind of yeah get to the thing that he was best at. He he wasn't able to fully impose his yeah. very styled visuals. But you could tell there was something unusual and different there. It wasn't just your standard indie stuff that he yeah. was someone with a, a particular vision. But with his last few films they are f- like fully yeah fantasy world stuff but the important thing is he he has that baseline of reality like something that censor didn't have because everything mm. looks like a horror movie the characters in his films are totally believable and relatable because they have these these sort of yeah. dual elements to themselves like the ray fines character in um, the grand budapest hotel is this very elegant refined gentleman who also sleeps with um, all his elderly guests yeah. um and you can you can see the the conflict in the character there. Yeah. The way he gradually takes the lobby boy under his wing and, and starts to treat him with with great affection and warmth. Yeah. There's yeah. a there's a there's a human like I say there's a humanity in his films that belies the idea that they're just these stiff formal exercises. Hmm. Very good. Um. Well, we just had where'd you go, Bernard? Didn't we? Yes. Right. Um, okay, now we're getting on to one that you've seen. Oh. Okay, this was... It was the biggest disappointment of last year. It was a film that I've been looking forward to for such a long time. I saw it as my reward f- for being able to get through the pandemic um, and you know get out the other side. And I've been looking forward to it for such a long time. And then it came out. And I described it in my video review as being like a kick in the fucking bollocks. And it's no time to die. I don't think I've got quite as low opinion of it as you have then. But the Daniel Craig James Bond films have been on a declining slope. When you you look at them now, it's clear that Casino Royale was the high, high point. And it's been downhill all the way since then. Um... I mean, what was next? Was it Quantum of Solace? Came yeah. After that, Skyfall. Everyone went nuts over Skyfall. I never much cared for it. Then Spectre. Spectre. It's just no. They've. I don't know quite how. Um, they've lost their way. I don't know if it's just uh, this is here's an argument that somebody else made, and so I can't claim any credit for this. I think it might be a guy called Mark Altman. Actually, I was probably listening to him on a podcast. Mark Altman. Altman. Oh right. Um, no, definitely not Mark. Mark Altman. Mark Altman might have his own podcast, but you know, I don't know. Mm. Um, anyway, he was saying that it, he sometimes thought that the worst thing the Bond films ever did was get off that. Oh, we've got two years to make another bot. Yeah, that tr- that sheer treadmill that they were on all the way through the seventies. At first, of that one every two years, virtually. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly the case with the the Daniel Craig films. I think the gap between some of those films is longer than the gap between License to Kill and Goldeneye. Not quite. Oh, okay. That that was six and a half years, and it was six years between Spectre and No Time to Die. Right, okay. But that's the pandemic's yeah, fault. Yeah, to be fair, there was... But but even so, the gap between some of the other films was still pretty hefty. I mean, I, I suppose you're only talking two or th- three or four it years. Was, um, it was a two-year gap, then a four-year gap, mm. then a three-year gap, and then it would have been four and a half years, yeah. but it wound up being six. 
Yeah, and okay, to be fair, yes, you know, the, the last couple of years of that are nobody's fault, but four and a half years to, I suppose there was an element of luring Daniel Craig back, um, although I think he was always reasonably committed to doing them, wasn't he? Making Spectre was apparently a massive ordeal. Ah, okay. Because Spectre had to top Skyfall. Right. Skyfall... And I know we've had this conversation mm. before that you that you you don't you're not keen on it, but it was a massive oh, yeah, success yeah, yeah. critically and commercially. Yeah. And so a sequel had to be mm. bigger. It had to be better. They spent. I mean, it's Spectre is one of the most expensive films of mm. all time. Um, and it was an absolute nightmare shoot. Craig was injured a number of times during the making of it. It was horrible. However. It does end in a way that you could say, well, that's the end of Daniel Craig's Bond. Yes. Because Blofeld is arrested, the author of all his pain is in prison. Well, it ends on a choice, doesn't it? He, basically he it chooses to walk away from yeah. MI6 to be with the woman he loves, and he drives off into the, the rising sun in his Aston Martin. I thought, you could end it there. Yeah. And that's a nice happy ending. The bad guy's defeated, Bond gets the girl who has yeah. a genuine relationship with even though their on-screen chemistry isn't great and yeah. fine and this but they had to have a victory lap yeah and, and this is my problem with no time to die there is no reason for this film to exist the way it does exist because it's a victory lap for daniel craig mm. it's his worst performance because a lot of the time he's not playing bond he's just being himself the way you have seen him on when he's interviewed okay um he brought in Phoebe Waller-Bridge to rewrite the script oh, yes. and her rewrites are dreadful um, the the dialogue feels overly forced mm. and jokey in a way that is out of step with the rest of the movie and out of step with the evolution of the films with Craig it's far too long mm. it's two and three quarter hours long and it could easily be half an hour shorter there is so much effort put into that are saying oh this is the last one this is the yeah. final adventure um, and then, how do you feel about giving away spoilers? Oh, I mean, obviously, no I mean, time you, to you've die. seen the movie. <laughs> it's no time to die. I mean, that's. Mm. I feel like we, I mean, we were avoiding with Matrix. Well, yeah, but we, that's we, we were avoiding with Matrix Resurrections because no one's seen the bloody thing, and because it's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> is it? Yeah, it spends. Fuck, I'm going to go. I'm going to go for it. Um, it spends the first chunk of the film unwriting the end so so that, that they go oh James Bond got the girl at the end of the last film how do we get out of that and then they spend like 20 minutes or 40 minutes whatever it is getting out of that and they they don't and this obviously because everyone's pointed everyone's pointed out that the Daniel Craig films were a vague rewrite of the original mm. first few films everyone thought oh this is going to be on Her Majesty's Secret Service and they'll kill her um, off and they don't, but they they do need to kind of like shuffle her out of the way. Yeah, and, and it's like maybe maybe you don't need to shuffle her out of the way. Maybe if you're committed to trying to do something different, you and and well, I'm not I'm not one I'm not a Bond screenwriter. I don't know, but maybe you don't just go. Oh, how do we undo that thing that was a big mo? You know, it was a big moment, so don't undo it is, I think, what I'm reaching towards. Yeah. And that feels like a misstep, because it means that the first chunk of the film is just going, oh, forget that. Le-. And then suddenly it's seven years later, or however long it's supposed to be, 
and she's the only person in the country that can be trusted to be Blofeld's psychiatrist. And it just all feels a bit... Yeah, it's, it's like it's like a Star Wars movie where it turns out everyone's related to yeah, the Yeah, they all live on the same three planet. Yeah. Um, oh, that's right, because... Well, getting, getting into the, the big spoilers, it turns out Bond has a daughter. Uh. Because it's written by people who think, hey... Let's do stuff that they've never had the guts to do in a Bond film before, mm. like give Bond a daughter, and then they do nothing with it. No. The daughter is not a character. She is a plot token yeah. that Bond has to arbitrarily care about. Yes. Um, and it throws away stuff like Blofeld's Island of Death, which was always one of Ian Fleming's slightly more peculiar ideas in the books. I mean, the... Oh, God, what book is it in? Uh, you only live twice. twice. That's a peculiar book by any standard. I think it, Fleming was, I think, getting increasingly uh, concerned with his own mortality by yeah. that point. And I'm not even sure it's a good Bond book, but it's it's a very odd it's one. A, it's a good book because it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of all over the place. But but the, the, the Blofeld's Garden of Death stuff and the point, that's, there's something there. there. There's a big garden, there's a big like pool of acid yeah. that people are farming and it's never explained or made clear. Yeah. There's there's a lot that's really underthought. Yes. Um Rami Malek as the villain has no motivation. Mm. He I I think he's supposed to be in love with Leosedu's character whose name I can't remember Madeline. I think he's supposed to be in love with her, but it's vague and then he decides that he's just going to have everyone killed because he's bad and it's yeah. it's really poorly written for a film that's been through as many writers as yeah. it has I see your point about leaving it too long between movies they overthink it I think that's they, it they but over rewrite it and they over plan and the result is something that's stripped of immediacy yeah I think that's the d- and, and this is the thing where you realise that obviously the, the, the great cliche is nobody ever sets out to make a bad film but the longer you've got to think about these things it does often seem like the the, the 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 more hands it goes through, the worse it gets. And yeah, I don't know. It just and he dies at the end. Well, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and and the reason he dies is for a child who's had no characterization and with whom Bond has little connection, and for a woman with whom he has almost no on-screen chemistry. Yeah, and because they it do, it's it's not. If you're going to kill James Bond, actually properly kill him, it has to really matter. It Mm. doesn't matter in this film because we are never given a compelling emotional reason why it should. Yeah, and he doesn't... He doesn't get... He doesn't particularly get killed. He's not fighting for anything. Particular. He's just blown up in an airstrike. Yeah, it's just because he's been injected with a magic virus oh, that will right. only kill so he can't people leave. with his DNA. And it's it's so. And it's and it was invented by M as a oh yeah, yeah. as a safeguard. I and mean, it just none of it makes sense. None of the characterization hangs together. In fact, funny enough, you've reminded me of the the good bit of the film. It's the raid on the lab at the start, um, where the, the the whole ra- the, the whole lab raid bit's quite nicely executed. I like the bit where they shot Hugh Dennis. Well, everyone likes to see Hugh Dennis get shot. Um, 
but you know, but the bit as well, especially Steve Punt. <laughs> yeah, I think Rob Newman's got some strong feelings <laughs> as well. Um, but the the bit where they they chuck the thing down the lift shaft, and it's like some weird magnetic um, braking system or something, and it's that the vague sense of going, oh yeah, I remember this was the stuff I used to like in Bond films as a kid is yeah. the weird gadget you know and it's, it feels like there's been so long since there's been weird gadgety stuff that 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 all felt quite refreshing that sequence but somewhere along the way the whole thing just turns into mush they never get the tone right mm. I mean with like the, the the magic virus and things like that it's like if Moonraker uh, had yeah. been played deadly serious Moonraker works because it's light and and yeah. slightly tongue in cheek and just enough to take off the edge yeah. of a, any um and also, any concern. And also if if Moon if um Oh, I can't believe it. Spider Love what, what a terrible day when I can't remember the name of the villain in Moonraker. Hugo Drax. Hugo Drax, honestly. That's it, I resign. <laughs> <laughs> um if Hugo Drax had created the genet that it wasn't orchid venom, it was just it was genetically engineered orchid venom that would only kill people with a specific DNA sequence, and yeah, you know, it would only it would only kill people who weren't blonde haired and blue eyed, yeah. which you could do, but it would just look so stupid. Yes, yeah. No time to die is serious in all the wrong places. Yeah. When it's jokey, the jokes don't work. When it's serious, it looks like a joke. Mm. Anna de Armas was good in her little role as a, a, a like a really enthusiastic spy. Actually, yes, yeah, fair play. That was that was a, um, that worked really well. Yeah, because um, she seems to be great in everything. Um, but it, it's too long. The music, Hans Zimmer's music, really generic, really just mm. identical, bland mush. Um, I didn't like the opening titles where it was sort of referencing older Bond titles. That, well, it's it's not giving it an identity of its own. It's just reusing bits of old iconography. Yeah. Um, I thought the theme song was good. I don't. I, I don't remember it. The Billie yeah, Eilish song doesn't stick in. The, but like I say, for me, da, the da, 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 da. Well, I'm not singing it very well. But no, it doesn't. But the. The, the, obviously, you, you, you've got the fundamental problem, and this is why why I'm not doing a James Bond podcast is I really like Pierce Brosnan, um, and uh, it's the best one after Roger Moore. <laughs> there's basically there's Roger Moore, then there's Pierce Brosnan, and then there's some also rats. I'm a big Timothy Dalton fan. Actually, yeah. To be fair, the um, Living Daylights yeah. is very good. Um, it always seems to be that each Bond's first film is their best. Mm, yeah, and that's certainly the case with Daniel Daniel Craig because Casino War, the, the you know it it doesn't take me any great effort to think of bits from Casino Royale. You know the the the, the whole chase sequence at the start where you've got God help us visual storytelling. You've got the guy he's chasing is being all lithe and athletic and is leaping through gaps, and Bond is just running through walls. Yeah, and you th- that's. That's brilliant. Um, and the chase across the cranes, which I remember sitting and watching in the cinema and realized my hands were sweating. Um, and the card game itself. You know, and it's... C- Casino Royale is, is one of those films that, that felt like it effortlessly, effortlessly fitted into the the original run, where it's like you just remember the, the great bits. Yeah. The rest... 
It's just soup. I don't really... I couldn't tell you a bit... If you named a bit, I probably... The opera bit in Quantum of Solace. Oh, yeah. That's quite nicely directed, I think. The... um. I really like Skyfall and I'm struggling to remember bits from it now. Oh, the, the motorbike chase, the beginning of Skyfall around uh, Istanbul. And then the fight on top of the train. The fight on the, okay, the fight on the train, yes. Actually, funny enough, I vague, I remember more of the titles to Sky, the, the bit where Bond gets shot. Yeah. And that leads into the title. That That's the bit of Skyfall. That, that and the bit where, I'm sorry, I know you quite like Skyfall, so I should stop picking on it. No, it's okay. But there's the bit where the chase, they're chasing through the underground and everything's blowing up and then the villain stops and a tube train kind of flies past as if that's part of the villain's plan. That he knew that there was going to be a tube train falling past at that point. I mean, the tube's pretty good, but it's not that reliable. <laughs> yeah, it's lucky he didn't do that at a weekend. Yeah, that's or true. or on the Hammersmith and City line. <laughs> yeah, well, you take well, talk London centric. I mean, yes, yeah, we're shedding listeners. Um, what's your least uh, with with no time to die in mind? What is your least favorite Bond film? That's an interesting. And basically, question. is it this one? It, I've only seen License to Kill once, and I didn't much like it first time round. Okay. But to be fair, I'd have to see it. I, I kind of feel like I'd have to see it a second time. Um, I'm not, and this, the, the, you know, the, 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 this is the kind of thing that the psychologists will study. Um, I'm not much of a fan of Fioris Only. I find it very boring. That's interesting because I mean, I mean, probably should talk about something else yeah, fairly yeah. soon. But um, I watched Fioris Only as part of the whole um, in 1999 when ITV showed all the Bond films oh, yeah. in order for the first time. Uh, for your eyes only was the only one I didn't really get on with. Oh, okay. And then when I got them all on DVD, I watched it again. I thought, actually, I was engaging with it because it's much, it's much more grounded and more serious as a Cold War story. Mm. And now I'd say it's one of my favourites. Okay. Because it has that completely different tone from yeah. Moonraker. It's much more serious, much more down to earth and and believable. Moonraker's fun. Oh yeah. But I wouldn't say it's a great film. I. C- I've got so much... But Moonraker is effectively in that position where it's one of those films I saw when I was like eight. Um, yeah, and I understand. That's, 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 it's flawless as far as I'm concerned. It's the, 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 I've said, you know, this, that's the film that the ghost of Thomas Edison was sitting in the cinema going, this is what I invented film for. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I filmed that man sneezing. Exactly. Um, but no, it. I, I don't know. It is entirely possible, actually, that, yeah, given that if, if the... The Daniel Craig films have been going downhill all the way. Then logically, No Time to Die must be the worst Bond film. Um, it's definitely my least favourite. Yeah, yeah, I think you could be right. Well, on that note, what, what's next? Oh, it's um, it's a Danish animated documentary about a refugee. Sounds hilarious. Uh, well, just you wait. Uh, flee. Uh, yes, a foreign language animated documentary from Denmark um, about Amin, who is a man who, with his family, fled Afghanistan when mm. the Taliban came to power, lived for some years illegally in Moscow, and several times had to uh, engage the services of a, of a people trafficker to get to the West and safety. And it's, again, it's one of those st- stories that you're learning something totally new 
you're seeing this story from his point of view. He's, he's, he's telling the story and it's played out yeah. in animated form in a really sort of really gorgeously styled animation, but it's sort of real enough not to get in the way yeah. of the story. And hearing firsthand what it's like to live like that. What's it like to be loaded into a shipping container with 30 other people and get loaded onto a ship that's going to travel on rough seas where your container is completely blocked in and you have no way of getting out. Mm. And uh, so much of it is a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And that he was going through this as, as a child as well. Now he lives in Denmark. He's married. He has a successful career. His family live in the West, mm. apart from his father, who he lost track of when they were fleeing Afghanistan, and no one knows what happened to him. But uh, his family is split across three different countries mm. because of where they were able to take refuge yeah. and where they were able to get smuggled to. Um, it was a real, it was a, just a really clear-eyed story of switching between his past and his present of uh, him him talking to the interviewer yeah and the interviewer in, in, engaging with him personally not just being yeah like a like a dispassionate voice behind the camera he he actually is part of the animation mm. and um his own uh neuroses about settling down with his husband mm. because that's the other thing that that he's gay and that in pre-Taliban Afghanistan, he'd run around in a dress and oh. the other people would just think, oh, that's odd <clears throat> and wouldn't really think about yeah. it. But if obviously he couldn't stay there because he would be killed. And his his understanding and his coming to terms with his own sexualities mm. is, is a major part of the story. And also the way his family behaved towards him. Um, that they they don't understand yeah but they are more open than one might expect they don't understand but they love their yeah. son and their brother and they want to be kind and supportive so there's a scene where he, he comes out to his his older sisters and his older brother when they're uh, in scandinavia and his sisters are kind of shocked and confused and his brother is very stern he says right come with me and takes him out of the flat and I think, God, where's this going? Mm. And they're driving around town and he doesn't say anything. And Amin is clearly really, you know, what's, what's going to, he's going to, and you're led to think, oh, he's, he's going to like drive him to a brothel and make him have sex with oh. a woman. He drives him to a gay club <laughs> and presses a hundred krona into his hand and says, go in there and have a good time, but you know, look after yourself. And then drives home again. Hmm. And I thought, of course. I mean, he, yeah, he's not really engaging with it, but he knows this is my brother. Yeah. I love him. I will support him. It's, yeah, a very, yeah, an animated documentary. Mm. I mean, I can think of one other of those. Which is that? Waltz with Bashir. Okay. Um, but a really interesting, very thought-provoking film. I think it's quite an important film to see because you never really get to hear about what it's like from their side yeah and now you, with this film you do yes 
And presumably it works better in the context of it being... It's effectively the interview is used as like a voiceover, is it? Or uh, Yeah, narration. Yeah. But there is... Um, sort of dramatised yeah. in it because like there's other characters doing voices because what I was thinking was that, that with some of those scenes that yes if you were to do it as a straightforward this is my story and I've turned it into a script and you were to film it with actors it might seem sort of unbearably sort of hokey or but where was actually the thing of presenting it as somebody telling you a story of what happened to them presumably just makes it seem a lot more powerful yeah because it's it's all real mm. um there's a, there's some live action material just of um, of news footage from the mm. time, like I mean and I mean another of his brothers going to the opening of the first McDonald's in <laughs> Moscow, but well they were grabbed by the police and dragged into a nearby van, mm. because apparently, to the surprise of many I'm sure, Moscow police are incredibly racist and incredibly corrupt. Right. Who could possibly have guessed? I didn't see that one coming. I mean. Well, is that, is, I can't imagine that's too surprising. Um, and they're only let go when another of them drags in a 17, 18-year-old girl and the three police officers decide that she'll be much more entertaining. Mm, terrific. Yeah. Yeah. It, and we only see what I mean. Since yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. He's, they say, well, you two hop it. And he's, he, he voices his own guilt that he didn't do anything about it. Yeah. But what could he possibly yeah, have done? Yeah, exactly. Um, a very good film. So number two on the list. Um, listener, you'll be, if you've been looking through the nominees, then you've only got, well, you know you've only got two films mm. left. I mean, that's how numbers work. But um, when I say what this is, you'll be able to work out what number one is because number two is Spencer. Not the long-anticipated film of Some Others Do Have Them. <laughs> Which, sadly, was exactly where my mind went. <laughs> <laughs> this is... Oh, um, this is the Lady Diana film, isn't yes. it? Yes. This is by the guy that directed Jackie. Yes. I want to see this. <laughs> well, it, you should, because it's know, really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's directed by Stephen Knight. Uh, no, it's written by Stephen Knight. I saw... Sorry, before you talk about her, but when I went to see Dune, a trailer came out for Spencer and it made it look like the worst film in the world and my, and my friend that was sitting next to me the, the guy that's the real Dune fan was, was sort of sitting there going oh my god and I'm going no it's by he did he did Jackie that's really good and it's like, I'm sure it must be better and yeah I'm just fascinated that that it did turn out to be great because the trailer made it look terrible it's it's a dreamlike film okay it starts with a um, an epigram saying this is not a true story oh this is uh, it's like this is a fable based on a true tragedy right so they're not it's not claiming that this is what happened it's saying you can imagine this is what happened mm. we have no evidence of that and it's set over the last christmas that diana spent as a member of the royal family um of arriving at sandringham house on christmas eve having to go through the rituals mm. of Christmas at the royal family, like opening their presents on Christmas Eve, because apparently um, that's their prerogative, that Father Christmas brings them their presents first because they're royalty. Um, the, her interactions with the rest of the royals are actually sidelined um, 
Many of them have no dialogue. Yeah. They just appear in scenes. The, the actress playing the queen, Stella Gunnett, or Gunnett, I think her name is pronounced, only has one scene of dialogue. Okay. Um, and there's only one major scene of dialogue with um, Prince Charles. Mm. But it's about this ruthlessly oppressive environment and the way that Diana was made to be an outsider was controlled. Like um, when she arrives at the house or when all the guests arrive at the house, they're all weighed. Right. Because the Queen apparently insists that everyone puts on a certain amount of weight over Christmas to demonstrate what a good time they had. Okay. <laughs> and Diana tries to opt out of that. Yeah, yeah. Because as we know, she had serious eating disorders. But says, no, no, no. Mom, you can't, I'm afraid. It's it's tradition. You have to. The, um, the equerry is played by Timothy Spall, who plays the role like a vampire. Hmm. <laughs> Like this, like this soul-sucking ghoul, and he's terrific. The film belongs to Kristen Stewart as Diana, mm. best actress of the year, hands down. It's an astonishing performance, totally believable, mm. totally real. Um, for a film that is so visual, there is not much in the way of dialogue. Um, Diana is more portrayed through her relationships with the below-stairs people. Mm. Her dresser, played by Sally Hawkins, who she becomes incredibly close. The head chef, played by Sean Harris, just for once, not playing a weirdo or a psycho, mm. um, who runs this kitchen like a military operation, but is still you know, a father to his men. Um, and Diana starts having visions of Anne Boleyn, and on Christmas morning, as they're leaving the church after the service, she catches the eye of Camilla Parker Bowles. Hmm. And I said in my review that it's like an inversion of Rebecca. That oh, yes, yeah. she's being got out of the way for the second Mrs. De Winter. She is the unacceptable one. Yeah. Towards the end, I mean, the, the music score is very important as well. It's Johnny Greenwood does a score. And it has this sort of... Um, light um, sort of chamber music but very oppressive in tone everything everything feels like it's pushing down yeah. on you um, and towards the end as she's driving away from Sandringham on Boxing Day she turns the car radio on and Mike and the Mechanics comes on and the whole film up to that point has been in and around Sandringham with this very oppressive atmosphere, this very doomy atmosphere. And suddenly, pop music. Mm. And the emotional release of that is incredible. That says, oh yeah, there's an outside yes. world. I mean, away from Gormenghast over there. Yeah, and then she goes to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm. Because... And and the last couple of scenes are in London, where it's like, yeah, here's here's the real world where normal people live, and that's where the vampires yeah. and the ghouls live in the weird mansion in the middle of nowhere. And Diana has escaped from them to live out in in the real world. It's it's a really emotionally engaging film. Mm. It's very it's as I say, it's strange because it has so little dialogue. So much of it is played out visually. Kristen Stewart's performance 
makes it. Yeah. It's it's absolutely compelling. Amazing stuff. You should watch it. <laughs> and that's like available through like the usual yeah. like online yeah. and DVD and what have you. Um worst film of the year. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah, remember how I said that like the uh, what was it? I mean, I can't remember. Chaos Walking and Spiral. Oh, yes, yeah. There's like they, they weren't very good, but they weren't yeah. terrible. Yeah, that that like curve goes down very, very steeply mm. because the worst film of the year was Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yeah, I I agree. Oh, good. Um, they had to wait until Harold Ramis died before they could piss on his grave, didn't they? Well, yeah. I, I mean, mean, I mean, yeah, surely. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it works, isn't it? But doing it the other way around would obviously save a whole amount of time. But yeah, it gets you involved in more civil disputes. Remember how Ghostbusters was a comedy? Remember how it was designed originally as a comedy and not a science fiction movie? I, uh, you it, know, occasionally I watch Ghostbusters just to remind myself that I'm not hallucinating. I. When did Ghostbusters become the Godfather? <laughs> because that's the other problem I've got. I like Ghostbusters, but it's a bit clunky. It's a film with a lot of montages in it um, that are just kind of doing a bit of the heavy lifting to get from scene A to scene B. Um, but when did it become this holy... I saw an interview with the director um jason reitman jason reitman talking about how he had to approach his father's legacy and it's like well, deal, te- deal with your problems yeah with your father on your own time yeah i mean everyone has baggage that's fine his father was a very successful filmmaker mm. and he is not so yeah okay but don't make a sequel to your father's greatest work, probably, um, that just retreads so much of the original oh, in so such a... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You, you agreed to record this podcast, Chris. <laughs> I just remember it. I'm having like... I'm suddenly having like emotion. I've never been annoyed by a film soundtrack before until Ghostbusters Afterlife because Ghostbusters Afterlife is just the Ghostbusters soundtrack. Yeah. And it's awful. The way it's well, used here. Uh, well, the, yeah, yeah. the actual music is good, yeah, but yeah. the way it's used, I agree. Um, and it's it's reusing so much of like, oh, and uh, hey, remember the Marshmallow Man? Mm. Well, now there's a whole like whole packets of him that come to life and are doing stuff in the supermarket. Yeah. And remember the the Zool Dogs? Well, they're back. And remember all the other stuff from the film that you liked? Well, here it is again, uh, but we're not going to have any jokes. No. Because, because this is serious. Yeah. Because the stuff that you grew up with is very important. Yeah. For all its faults, and we've talked about it many times, the, 19, the 2016 remake was a comedy. At least it's... Yeah. First and foremost, it was a comedy. Yeah. And some of it is even funny. Mm. This is not a comedy. It's a science fiction adventure in the mold of the Goonies, even the Goonies is funny, mm. um, that's just strip-mining the original film yeah. in the laziest and most hackneyed way possible to appeal to fans who don't like it when girls touch their stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's... It's I... really badly made as well. Uh... It's, it's really... Qu- it's 
badly directed and badly edited. Like there's the scene where the, where she's playing chess with the ghost of Egon. Mm. It keeps cutting across the line, which so that characters are jumping position within the frame. Yeah. Which you don't do because that's how you work out the geography of a scene. And also And it's very disorientating. And it's and then just you know, just as you think the film can't get any more toe curling, the ending sequence where where we have the, the original the, Ghostbusters come back, three, three embalmed corpses and the dead one. Yeah, I mean, it's the the non-speaking ghost of Egon Spengler. Oh. That, and that I I can't I can't decide whether not giving him lines is more or less offensive because of course it means that he has to communicate by all these kind of like winsome glances and look pulling making his mouth look sad but i don't <laughs> i don't know if that's worse than actually if they'd just got a howard ramus impersonator in to, to do a bit of dialogue but it's so much of bad hollywood films is about the parental relationship and fixing the book. This is a guy that, excuse my language, this is a guy that 20 years ago fucked off and abandoned his family. But it's all right in the end because his ghost looks a bit upset. It's guy, it's awful. Yeah, it's I agree. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, that hadn't occurred to me before. But you're absolutely right, and that makes it worse. <laughs> because that's on top of all the other things about yeah. it that I hated. Yeah. Um... And the ending retreads, I mean, as well as that, the ending retreads the ending of the original film, um, just just wholesale. It's just yeah, the yeah. ending of the original film. And with pointless extra cameos. There's one bit, okay, one bit I genuinely, genuinely raised an eyebrow is when they're watching the original Ghost, but we're ready to believe you advert. I think they're watching yeah. it on like a tablet or a smartphone. And that's one of those moments when it kind of closes the gap in year. The, the, it's a really... It's a really clever way of closing the distance between the original film and the modern film. And that's it. That's the good bit. I mean, this this is the film. There's one ghost at the end of the film. They don't bust... Howard Romus's ghost, so they're not even good Ghostbusters. Oh, no, no. So he why, goes to heaven. But this is so. Why are some ghosts okay and some ghosts aren't okay? Oh, because some of them look like monsters. Oh well, that's yeah. That's pretty much. A, I mean, oh, sorry. That's I, basically. I, sorry, race. I nearly got. It, that, that's that's a, some of them look like monsters. That's American foreign policy. Little bit of politics there, yeah, ladies I mean, and gentlemen. Very good. Well, it's been said that the original film is a satire on um, free market economics that they set up their own business and then the government starts interfering. I mean, but that's... Yeah. But, but, I, but I always thought, well, yeah, but I don't think they did that on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is in a different film. What's the... Um, Aaron Brockovich. You Imagine making an Aaron Brockovich-style Ghostbusters where Walter Peck is the, is the hero. Because she investigates like toxic po- toxic chemical poisoning and stuff, doesn't yeah. she? Yeah. So you've got the Walter Peck character is fearlessly investigating these horrible people that have got unlicensed particle accelerators and are dumping terrible chemicals into the New York. Yeah, I just think I just feel there's a whole different story to be told from from somebody else's perspective in this one. Well, there kind of already is a third Ghostbusters story because there was the video game mm. about ten years ago where they brought back all the original cast. Yeah. And 
um, you got to be the new Ghostbusters recruit. And the idea was that the Ghostbusters are now an emergency service. So they're funded by the city, but their point of contact is Walter Peck. So he now has to work with them (laughs) and acknowledge that actually, yeah, we do need the Ghostbusters, but I don't actually like any of them because they're horrible to him. Huh. So there was, I mean, yeah. obviously that's not the point of the, the yeah. game, but there's the thing, yeah, that's a good way of developing it. That he works with them and acknowledges that he needs them, but still hates them and they still hate him. Mm. Um, there are ways of doing a third Ghostbusters story yeah. that would work and be interesting. And this manages to avoid all of them. Yeah. Um, it's badly made, it's badly thought out, it is actively insulting the audience. It's actively insulting the people who made the 2016 film, right? You know, yeah. regardless of quality, it's just a poke in the eye for them. Um, yeah, what a load of shit. Um, Quick, talk about something nice. Best film of the year, a Danish drama about alcoholism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Another round. Um, this is a an annoying one because it was actually at last year's BAFTAs and Oscars even though it wasn't released in the UK until July right so I think there was a lot of gerrymandering going on there so that it would qualify but um, it was one of the first ones I saw in the cinema again it's uh, co-written and directed by Thomas Vinterberg and it's the story of a group of school teachers in Copenhagen who are now in their mid-40s and aren't enjoying life the way they feel they ought to. They're not getting the same sort of zest out of their work and their personal lives as they used to. And one of them mentions that he recently read an article about how human beings might actually have a natural alcohol deficiency. And that if you maintain a low but reasonable blood alcohol level at all times, it makes you more creative more um more confident it sort of unlocks those things that might be holding you back within your own personality so they try it and it starts to work they become more motivated more creative in in their teaching and engaging their uh their students better and more uh, uh engaged with their their personal lives and more adventurous and and more willing to break out of their uh, their routines mm. but as this experiment progresses things start to change and the film is more uh, what was originally a film about what well, was a, was conceived as being a warning about the dangers of alcohol in a way that could mm. be quite sort of finger wagging becomes instead a more ambivalent story about our relationship with alcohol in general that it can unlock these things it can make you more confident more creative make you almost like a better version of yourself but it can lead to addiction it Mm. can lead to dependency it can completely destroy your life and the lives of people around you like i said earlier it's only a tool only becomes a weapon when it's used for violence alcohol as homer simpson once said can be both the creator and solution to all your problems. I thought it was a really imaginative, thoughtful film. Uh, Vinterberg's daughter died in a car accident. He was motivated towards 
making something to, to changing the script with that in mind mm. um and mas mickelson as the, the de facto leader of the the four teachers i thought was terrific i thought it was a fantastic performance i remember that i've actually forgotten to give some of my award winners for the year oh well we'll we'll do that. i'll remind you at the end and we'll do that one um but it was a film that was emotionally and intellectually and artistically completely engaging more than anything else i've seen in the last year intelligent but humane and interrogative of its own hmm. central ideas um it has a really um, extraordinary ending sequence with one of the characters ultimately dies right um but uh the others attend his funeral the same day as the students graduate and Mickelson's character goes from the funeral to go into this graduation party where as I was in the poster he's drinking champagne from the bottle and as has been mentioned earlier in the film he was a dancer mm. and he breaks into this exuberant dance dancing around this harbour and, and then leaping and diving over the quayside and the film freeze frames as he dives into the water and it's him coming to terms with the idea that alcohol can destroy you sometimes mm. and sometimes it can set you free and that trusting the audience to accept such a paradoxical concept i think is the film's masterstroke because when you see films about drugs that are off, either saying drugs are good oh. or drugs are fine but this one is saying it can be both yeah you have to make an intelligent decision for yourself it's great and the award nominations go oh, to the the awards yes um best director was Pablo Lorraine for Spencer okay yeah um and be best original screenplay was another round and i mentioned the others yeah so it was yeah and a very interesting year yeah i did not expect two of the three best films i saw this year to be in danish i was a little bit surprised that the danes stayed to come back this year <laughs> the comeback after the after i'd previously written them off well yes yeah but uh, an interesting mixed bag. I noticed that half of the films have female leads. Mm. Um, another has a trans female director. Two are in foreign languages. It's so no one can say that I'm not being uh, uh, Catholic in my choices. I mean, I'm so out of touch with all the sort of the, the like Empire magazine and things like this uh, these days. Are they still writing long articles about how suddenly there's loads of films about women or films being directed by sort of trans women and things like that? Or I haven't read Empire in 15 years. Well, <laughs> but yeah, um, but I, I don't know if that's part of the, or whether the conversation has just moved on effectively and that that sort of thing is no longer taken for granted. Or rather that sort of thing is now taken for granted. I don't know. I, mm. I, I think certainly on trans issues, mm. that is very much a matter of, discussion on whether or not trans people should have rights i think they should yeah absolutely um but um i mean like going back through my old lists i know like for six or seven years in a row in like the last 20 years i thought oh yeah 
female lead, female lead, female lead, female lead. Mm. <laughs> it does I, seem of, to... often because it's stories that I haven't heard before. Yeah, and and that might be um, sorry to avoid sounding like a stuck record, but that might be why I vaguely developed a bit of a thing for the poorly written wife character because increasingly yeah. it is starting to stand out more and more that oh look here's a character that we can't think of anything to do with mm. but uh, no it's interesting isn't it that and obviously you still get all the inevitable talk about like will the next James Bond be a, 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 a one of those lady spies they have these days yeah um, and I uh, if I'm not even sure that's the right question to be asking. I think the, I think a better question to ask, which I think you're you're pointing towards, is why aren't there any really good films about lady spies? Yeah, well, the, yeah, exactly. It is. It's often that thing, isn't it? That the the standard defence about should Doctor Who be a woman or should James Bond be a woman or whatever is why don't you just go off and write a successful series of films in which you know. The, the 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 lead character is a female spy and it's a bit of a glib answer it's so it's a bit of a glib question uh, in in some ways because of course the answer is well it won't get the same amount of attention as casting a woman as james bond or as doctor who but at the same time it's also you know yeah just just do it just just make films where it's a female because if it's done properly as you say, it raises new questions, and it suddenly does give you the chance to hear, see familiar stories from a different angle. You know, it's the it's the, the um, I'm really sorry, I've managed to forget which film you were talking about, where it was the mother and the it was the mother daughter relationship, the lost daughter, yeah, rather than the father son relationship. You know, it's just that thing. Yeah, just tell it from another, t- tell the story, tell stories from different angles for change. Yeah. Well, I've got a list of. Oh, sorry, I should ask. What was your favourite film of last year? Of the six or seven that you watched? I, I, quite, I, liked, I think I liked Dune a lot more than you did. Yeah, but well. I think the Matrix, Reser- Matrix Reservations, as I say, I really responded to the opening sequences. Um, and then it kind of lost me in the middle when it does the more generic stuff. And then I think it did kind of win me back a bit at the end with the the, the final big chase sequence through the city and and all the stuff where where um, Neo is hanging off Trinity's arm. Um, I don't know. It might be Matrix Resurrections. Actually, thinking about it, I think it oh. sits in my film as a better film than I remember. Than I I, I think I, I I don't think I was amazed by it at the time. I think now it sits in my memory as a better film. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there's some interesting films coming out over the next year. Um, we've got uh, a new Paul Verhoeven film coming up Ooh. about a lesbian nun. Oh. So that's pretty much boilerplate for him. Um, Blonde, in which Anna de Armas plays Marilyn Monroe, okay. from the director of The Assassination of Jesse James. The Bob's Burgers movie, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Creed 3. Yeah. Um, a da- new David Cronenberg film. Crimes of the Future. Um, what else have we got? Final Cut, the French remake of One Cut of the Dead. Okay. The Japanese horror comedy, which I can't talk about because it's a spoiler. Right. Uh, Next Goal Wins. Um, Taika Waititi's much delayed film about the uh, American Samoan football mm. team. I knew I'd I knew I'd heard of that one from somewhere. Yeah. A film that. 
I don't expect to be particularly successful is Nitrum, which is a character study of the uh, perpetrator of the Port Arthur murders in Tasmania in 1996. It sounds quite niche already. But yeah, it's an Australian film about about that. It, 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 I mean, it was. Yeah. You you're aware of the event that I'm referring to? No. It was a, so. uh, a mass murder. Um, no. I don't want to say the person's name. Yeah. No. Um, but um, uh, who killed about 30 people in one day at a uh, a cafe um, at a historic site in Tasmania, and as well as multiple other people he saw on the way back to his house, which led to a police standoff uh, and ultimately his arrest, and he is oh. now in prison forever. Uh, I'm mildly annoyed because I thought he would be an interesting subject for a film mm. at some point, but someone else got there first. Yeah. Um, and um, George Miller's got a new film out. Okay. About um, a, a, a genie. Right. So uh, <laughs> it's called 3,000 Years of Longing, and it's been in development for quite a long time, but he has actually filmed it now. And there's also The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, in which Nicolas Cage plays himself as an undercover CIA agent um, having to help take down a drug kingpin. Is that... Am I being pranked at this point? Or is that a real film? With it's a real, a real film because, uh, like, he's. You know how some celebrities are hired to make personal appearances at parties for rich people. Yes. Well, Nicolas Cage is hired by this wealthy guy to come to his birthday party, and because he owes another huge tax bill, he goes. But it turns out he's actually a drug kingpin, and the CIA uh, enlists Nicolas Cage to be their inside man. Right. And he has to. Um, adopt various uh characters from his previous films as well over the course of the uh the story i mean that it is a comedy the, the trouble is it's a, it's a, it's a modern nicholas cage film it could be terrible it could be brilliant there's almost but it certainly sounds promising doesn't it well it start, co-stars pedro pascal and okay. um, tiffany haddish so this isn't some like straight to video yeah. nonsense this is a proper movie yeah um and Nicolas Cage has long since passed the event horizon of that's, that's playing himself exactly. as himself. Yeah. Okay. Um, he he can laugh at himself, I think, and he's mm. he's happy to, you know, take take a joke. Yeah, which is the trick that Bruce Willis never pulled off, of course, isn't it? Yeah. I've heard sad stories about Bruce Willis. Mm. The reason why he's doing so many films as quickly as he is is because he. Uh, Apparently has uh, some severe neurological problems. Oh, oh god! Okay. Um, doesn't mean he's a nice person, though. No. So, thank you very much for your time. That's great. Uh, I've got you know a lot of Danish films for you to watch. Mm. Um, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, with over a hundred episodes available. So please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, yachida!